This podcast is very proudly brought to you by my new book, From Peasants Food to Superfoods. This book is based on cooking for the entire family and it guides cooks from all experiences on how to integrate healthy foods into everyday life. I know it's easy to stick to the same old things every week with a family to feed and a budget to stick to, but eating nutritious and delicious food every night is achievable and affordable. Learning how to use, prepare, and incorporate new and old ingredients into tasty and exciting food is what I love doing. So I have put this book together. It's over 300 pages. There's over 100 simple, nutritious recipes, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, desserts. Most of it's gluten-free, dairy-free. It's very gut-healing, very anti-inflammatory, and I hope that you will love it as much as I have, putting it together and (laughs) bringing it to life. So if you would like to check it out, learn more, or order it, jump online at www.mgherbs.com.au. And thanks for bringing us the podcast today. You're listening to Melissa Gearing, the Naked Naturopath. Mel is a qualified naturopath, herbalist, and nutritionist. She can't wait to share her thoughts on all things health and wellness with you. Hey guys, welcome back to The Naked Naturopath. What I would ask of you today, if you are listening in and you do enjoy The Naked Naturopath and listening to me speak, I would love it if you can go and follow me on Instagram. This matters because I have my second edition of the book coming out in a month or so, and I would really love to increase the followers there to share that book. Um, It is important for marketing and stuff like that as well, but there's loads of info, health tips. You can see me, follow me, my barb, my family, and what we're doing day to day. And, um, you know, also get all that information for your well-being as well. And it's totally free and why not, right? Most of us have Instagram today. It, the Instagram is mgherbsofficial. And if you do want to follow me on Facebook as well, it's mgherbs. So you can check out those two. Uh, I know lots of people are looking for the Naked Naturopath, but it has a different name, so I wanted to let you know. Now, onwards with the cast. I've had a lovely listener write in. He and his wife pre-purchased my second edition of the book, and they're waiting with bated breath for it, and I thank you so much for that support. But they just had their first baby last week, and they've been listening to the podcast for a while in the build-up to having the barb, and he has written in and said this ended in an emergency cesarean. And they asked about doing a swab uh, for the, of the birth canal for stomach bacteria, but the hospital where they are said definitely no, which seems a little harsh. Um, they told us that some babies got sick from it or died. So he's wondering if we could chat about that on the podcast and other ways that they can help him grow up nice and healthy after a cesarean. And so I have enlisted the help of... One of my wonderful colleagues and friends, her name is Sheree Sheldon, and she's been on the podcast a couple of times. The reason that I asked Sheree out of all of the people in the world that I could ask is because she deals a lot with new bubs, mums, pre-birth build-up, um, all the stuff that you would you know, uh, want to know before you get pregnant, as well as when you are pregnant and after as well she has had three beautiful baby girls of her own and she has had uh some experiences during that time which we've talked about on the podcast uh in the past so if you want to go back and um you can just search Sheree Sheldon and she'll be on the cast a couple of times and you can listen in and we tell you about our birth stories and and all that kind of stuff and we talk, talk very openly about that so she is 
incredibly research-based. She knows her stuff in, in and out. And so I wanted to get her on and get her opinion of this. But lastly, before we begin, I wanted to play you a recording. This recording is from the um, BMJ, so the British Medical Journal, and the editorial is called Vaginal Seeding of Infants Born by Caesarean Section, and the vaginal seeding is in inverted markers, and they actually have a little um, SoundCloud clip for 10 minutes uh, from Aubrey Cunnington, who is the senior lecturer um, and the, the article publisher of the article. And the little clip is called, What is Vaginal Seeding and Is It Safe? And I wanted to start this cast by playing this for you and we'll go from there. So I hope you enjoy this little clip. An editorial just published on the BMJ.com talks about vaginal seeding of infant born by cesarean section um, and raises some concerns about the practice. Joining me in the studio now is the author of that editorial, Aubrey Cunnington, who's a paediatrician who specialises in infectious disease, to just talk a little bit more about what vaginal seeding is and, um, and how it came about. So, Aubrey, first start, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. What is it? Well, I didn't know anything about this until about last summer, uh, 2015, um, when one of my neonatal uh, consultant colleagues mentioned to me that uh, she'd been involved in a case with a mother who had asked for vaginal seeding to be done of her baby after it had been born by a cesarean section. Um, So that prompted me to ask exactly the same questions, actually, and to go away and look at this. It's a process where the vaginal fluid um, is taken on a gauze swab um, and applied to the baby, usually starting uh, with the baby's mouth and then over the face and the rest of the body. Um, And this is done for babies who've been born by caesarean section. So they haven't been born through the normal route, through the birth canal. Um, And so they haven't been exposed to the vaginal fluid. The rationale behind it is that the vaginal fluid contains a huge number of different bacteria. And many of these bacteria may be beneficial to the health of the baby in the immediate period after birth and in the longer term. So what are some of those long-term claims that are being made? So we know that uh, birth by uh, caesarean section is associated epidemiologically with slightly higher risks of a number of diseases, mostly non-communicable diseases and mostly in later life, but things like obesity, asthma, some diseases that have an immune basis. Um, And those findings are relatively consistent and based on large numbers of subjects that have been studied. And we also know that those, some of those diseases are associated with differences in the microbiota between individuals. So it's very much still a hypothesis, but the idea is that the microbiota may be responsible for this increased susceptibility to those diseases. And we know that the microbiota is very different between babies that are born by caesarean section and babies that are born by vaginal delivery from very, very early on in life and might be the factor that's predisposing. So the hope is that if you could make a baby born by caesarean section have a microbiota that was more like that of a baby that was born vaginally, then 
you might be able to ameliorate some of those risks of the non-communicable diseases in the future. There's some big claims or possibilities anyway. Um, is there any evidence to suggest that this might actually work? Uh, so the short answer to that is is no. Um, but the I suppose the slightly more thoughtful answer to it is that it certainly could be. It's not a bad idea to think that it might be of benefit. But at present, we have absolutely no evidence to prove that it is. I think there is a lot of hope, and along with that, quite a lot of hype about the potential role of the microbiota and how we may be able to change the microbiota, these bacterial communities, in order to achieve health benefits. Um, And there is a huge amount of research going on at the moment looking at this, but often at quite a basic level in animal models, for example. And for the most part, we don't have much evidence that we can actually manipulate this therapeutically in humans. Fortunately, there is some research which is going to lay the foundations going forwards with this, um, going on looking at, for example, whether vaginal seeding does manage to change the communities of bacteria that are living on and in uh, a baby. But that's still a long, long way from showing that it has any health benefits in the long term. Absolutely. Um, Now, you've mentioned the hope there a bit. um, And uh, you heard of this once uh, a few years ago. Has it become more popular since then? Where is this sort of idea being propagated? Um, Yes, so I, I, I heard of it just in my routine clinical practice, um, then I thought this doesn't sound like it's a necessarily safe practice. So I asked a bit more around, um, we asked all of our colleagues who were practicing in neonatology and our obstetric colleagues, um, and most people had come across this in their practice, um, had been involved with one or more cases and didn't really have a great understanding of where it was coming from either. So when we went back and sort of started looking, obviously um, just trawling the internet, first of all, there were quite a few reports which had um, come out of the sort of more lay media, so articles in um, major newspapers in the UK and um, in Australia as well, talking about it, and a lot of interest on um, sort of social media sites and chat groups, particularly for for pregnant women talking about um, options around the the time of birth. Um, And so it seemed that there there was quite a a lot of interest that hadn't really um, brought with it an engagement from the medical profession to think about whether this was necessarily the right thing to to do. Of course. Um, No, you mentioned in your editorial that you did have some concerns about about the safety of it. So could you take us through what you worried about and what you're doing in your uh, practice? Yes, so um, we know that babies can acquire a number of different infections at the time that they're, they're born. And one of the problems is that um, the organisms that can cause these infections can be completely asymptomatic in the mother or even just carried by the mother they're not really an infection in the mother at all and a good example of that would be group b strep um and a baby who is born by an elective cesarean section where they haven't been exposed to the maternal vaginal fluid or any of these organisms 
actually would be much less likely to, to acquire these types of infections. Um, now, that's not to say we should just do caesarean sections for the sake of protecting them, because the risks overall are quite low. Um, but we have to assume that if those types of infection can be acquired by normal passage through the birth canal, they could also be acquired um, if you transfer vaginal fluid on a swab onto, onto the baby. And I suppose uh, our anxiety is simply that if we've got um, a procedure which has no proven benefit, and even if it carries a small risk of harm, we can't really justify that small risk of harm. However, the other side of the argument, which many mothers may make, is that if they'd had the choice of delivering their baby vaginally, they would have chosen that, along with the attendant very small risk of those types of infection. And so it creates a bit of an ethical dilemma for healthcare professionals, because they shouldn't be expected to do something that may cause harm when they know for sh when they have a fairly good reason to believe it's not beneficial. On the other hand, um, I don't necessarily believe we should take away the choice of mothers to to do this themselves if they if they wanted to, as long as they're informed about the fact that a we know that we don't know that there's any benefit from it, and b there is a potential risk there. But presumably, no more risk than giving birth vaginally would have done absolutely. in the first place. Yeah. Absolutely. However, that might impact on the assessment that a health professional makes. Um, a baby who's been born by an elective caesarean section, um, if they're, they've got subtle signs that they're unwell, they, they might think they're at lower risk of having sepsis and their actions may be changed if they knew that the baby had received vaginal seeding. So I, I think... It's a fairly, actually a fairly subtle point, but it's important that um, parents who decide to do this are aware that there may be some risk and that if they seek advice from a health professional about their baby um, because they're unwell, they should make sure that they communicate that they did do vaginal seeding if they did. Absolutely. Um, great. Well, uh, you've been listening to Aubrey Cunnington talk about vaginal seeding and his editorial uh, is now available on thebmj.com. Hey, Cherie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for giving some of your time to address Jacob's question. Jacob is um, the lovely man who wrote in to me yes. asking about um, the vaginal seeding. Mm -hmm. So we've done a little clip on kind of that clip's good because it covers what it is. Totally. How people do it, what the purpose is, what the idea behind it is. Um, so it saves us having to do all that. Yeah, yeah. And we can just chat about the you know pros and cons and, and I guess what we think as clinicians. But um, also what it comes down to, what we've both discussed, and it's taken us many conversations yep. to actually hit record on this podcast yep. is that it comes down to choice right totally so I think that's what your it's... choice your decision and a lot of um hospitals that you'll birth at either won't be aware of it or won't be supportive because it's against their policies or procedures but ultimately it's your body and it's your baby so there's uh, a thing called informed consent and you know they uh, are I feel that's probably a podcast in its own mm. about informed consent around birth. But um, this is another issue of that. This is something that you would like to do. Um, then 
you have every right to do it. And it's almost like you have to have an arsenal of research up your sleeve to fight some of these fights, like why you don't want an epidural, why you don't want to be induced, why Mm. you want vaginal seeding. And the general public don't have that arsenal. No. Even I don't have that arsenal when someone puts me on the spot. And I think sometimes it just doesn't exist because it's a new thing. So the research is really unclear at at the moment of whether it is a good thing or it's not Mm. or in what circumstances it's good and in what circumstances it's not. So until it's very clear cut like that, a lot of um, hospitals won't make a decision. So you have to make your own. And something as complex as the microbiome is always like going to be difficult and mm-hmm. it may never be clear cut because it is something that we just don't know the full ins and outs of despite all the recent research and study. Something that we read while we were kind of um, researching this topic is that we're not even sure that vaginal seeding happens in the way that we suppose it does, that logical way whereby when the baby comes down the vaginal passage, they're getting exposed to those important microbiome um, or biome, uh, mm-hmm. you know, down down below, and then that is the first seeding. We're not sure if it's the skin to skin. We're not sure if it's when they breathe their first breath of air or when they get home into the home environment. Like we just don't know where that first. Yeah, and and I think the research changes all the time as well. It's, you know, they've said for so long that when a baby's in utero, it is a sterile environment, and now they're like, oh, actually, we think that there there is some bacteria. Um, from the mum's microbiome getting in there somehow, crossing the um, placenta and actually, you know, seeding the baby in there. So it's unclear how much that makes an impact lifelong. Mm. So what we do know about the microbiome is it takes a 1,000 days to establish a baby's microbiome um, for, for their, like, lifelong health. And um, in that time, it's really quite, I don't know what word I'm trying to use, variable, mm-hmm. um, pliable, mm-hmm. and we can influence it positively and we can influence it negatively. And mm-hmm. it, it um, the, the growth of the different bacteria species and families will, you know, be really quite dependent on what happens in those first thousand days so that's their first two years of life and then after that that's pretty much set for their for their um their entire life yeah wow i like the eye the colors in the eye yeah so we got two years two years yeah so it's to fix it like essentially like so you know something that really came up for me when i was researching this podcast is that callie was born in her sack yeah so she never got her microbiome seeding if it is how it happens through mm. the vaginal canal because she was still in that sac so her mouth was not open or exposed yeah. to any of that. So all of the work that I did, <laughs> you know, to get it good was um, wasted essentially in my head yeah. when she was first born. However, she is an incredibly healthy um, touchwood, no allergies, no asthma, nothing like that, which yeah. is what we see a high incidence of in cesarean sections and is why vaginal seeding has kind of come to the forefront. Yes. So possibly as a preventative for that yeah so I first heard about it just after I'd had my first um I went to a seminar about children's health and they talked about vaginal seeding and I was like what is this you know 
luckily with Bailey, I didn't have a Caesar birth, so it wasn't on my, oh my God, I wish I'd have known yeah. this. <laughs> but as a naturopath who wants to specialise, you know, in supporting women with, um, you know, pregnancy and birth, it was like, oh, this is something that I need mm. to know. Um, and then there was a film that I watched when I was, uh, well, I don't know when, preg- just after I'd given birth to Erica, it was, and it's called Microbirth. And they were showing the research. They were following researchers all about vaginal seeding. And I thought it was amazing. And the hope that I felt at the end of that film was that that this research, that this um, the, the positivity, um, the positive influences from microbiome seeding mm. would reach into hospitals and reach soon. But unfortunately it hasn't. And from the sound of the question that Jacob asked, um, it's it, they got a different message. And one thing we need to kind of um, answer, I guess, is that uh, we couldn't find any record of children, babies dying no. from vaginal no, seeding. No, no. As soon as you sent me the question that yeah. Jacob asked, I was like, you got into it. it. Yeah. Like, where, <laughs> who, where, how much, yeah. what, when did this happen? And I could not find anything online. And think that that would be something that would be publicised quite heavily based on the current medical regime of not wanting to do it. Yeah. Yes. Um, what does come up when you do Google um, and you search for, you know, um, infant deaths or neonatal deaths with um, vaginal seeding is the link to GDS, so Group B strep. Um, and that's, I think that's the main risk that mm-hmm. they're concerned about is that you will actually seed your baby with this bacteria and that they, you know, screen most pregnant women for and want to give you antibiotics if you have got it. So that's the concern. And do you want to talk about GBS? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. I think it's important because a lot of women do get screened for that and if it's a yes, they just do the course of antibiotics and if it's a no, then they go on and and nothing more is, you know, said or done. Yeah. So, yes, let's talk about it. That would be great. Yeah, so it's a transient bacteria. Um, At any one time, what is it, a third of women? Yes. A third of women have it Um, and it's, it's usually asymptomatic it won't cause any problems it depends it's like any bacteria species in your microbiome it depends on the amount of them whether that's problematic um they usually screen women in their third trimester it's a little probe that they stick vaginally and a little bit into their bum bum and go and test and then i'll say yep you've got it here's what we recommend you do you need to have antibiotics now and then um depending on how close they are to labour, then they'll say, all right, and, and IV antibiotics during labour. And this is not an outcome that most women want. No. Um, now, I've had a client recently who was screened for it in her first trimester. I think it was like six weeks she was pregnant and then they gave her antibiotics then. Right. And then later on in the pregnancy they screened her again and she still, she still had it, they said. So they gave it to her again, more antibiotics, and then again at birth. Oh, wow. Um, now, for me, I don't understand the first trimester screening of it at all because it is such a transient thing. It will come, it will go. So you could treat it with antibiotics and then it will come, you know, flourish or mm. depends on what's going on in that microbiome. And 
supporting it with bacteria that will, you know, crowd out the GBS might be a better solution than trying to destroy all of the bacteria. So we're talking about that good bacteria versus that bad bacteria. Mm-hmm. When we do vaginal feeding, you're moving all the bacteria across. Yeah. And when you do antibiotics, you are killing a lot of the bacteria. Yeah. So we're not um, – it's not picky. These no, things aren't an- picky. antibiotics don't go, oh, you're bad, you're good. You can stay, you can leave. They just go, oh, everyone's gone. <laughs> and then the strong survive. And usually the strongest that survive are the commensal bacteria or the ones that we don't want in big amounts. Yeah. And they, they are given an opportunity to flourish after we've taken antibiotics, which is why probiotics are so important now. And most most chemists, when you go and fill a script for antibiotics now, will give you probiotics alongside it because um, they know that that's what happens. Yeah. But if you're looking at what's happening with the vagina, does taking a probiotic orally get into your microbiome in your vagina they don't know Mm. they're unsure how that works so um, one of the things that I've learned when I did my GAPS training was we talked about seeding the microbiome in your um, vagina while you were pregnant um, by utilizing either milk fear or an organic yogurt and or a probiotic capsule that was you know safe had good species in it and actually inserting it vaginally, so mm. you made your um, microbiome flourish, and you did you did the work while you. So this is something that I've had a lot of success with treating thrush. Mm. So using a, a probiotic capsule vaginally, which some you know can be a bit like, well, for some women, what are you talking about? It's just like a tampon. But yeah, totally. Scenario. We don't often give our vagina medicine, so like, you know. <laughs> yeah. But if it was a you know uh, if it was a thrush cream or something similar. Uh, that idea that, yeah, we can treat that microbiome very, very locally. Mm. So getting back to that GBS thing, so they think there is 150,000 um, neonatal deaths worldwide every year that um, due to GBS. It used to be um, a hell of a lot more. So they think now it's roughly 5% of the women that have tested positive for GBS um, and that's, that's not all women do, may have an issue that, um, that will transfer it to the baby. And then of the babies that have been transferred with GBS, 1% of those will be the one that dies. Okay. And, I mean, you, you never want a baby die. You ne- so it's weighing up that risk factor for yourself of do I want to risk being one of the 5% that give this to my baby and then my baby being that 1% of those mm. that that um, that dies or do you work actively during your pregnancy to go right this is this is a, a risk and and how do I balance my microbiome so GBS is not going to flourish yeah yeah one of the ways that they do that now is with um, inserting raw organic garlic cloves because the garlic is antibacterial and it's a little bit of a selective um, bacteria, antibacterial type of thing. So it's not like an antibiotic. Um, some of the good bacteria are immune or a little bit ignorant to garlic's effect, mm-hmm. apparently. Yeah, right. And, um, and yeah, GB, it's been shown to work on GBS 
to reduce the population. Uh, you know, my, my friend who's GP had a garlic clove incident last, maybe last month she was telling me about. Poor lady, got it stuck. So oh. just be mindful, girls, that, you know, I don't want to put it too far up there. Yeah, well, the instructions that I um, have read about this, and I've talked to a few friends that are midwives um, when I was pregnant with Sage because I tested positive for GPS and um, was like, okay, this is what I've researched. Um, garlic came up and I've, you know, changed my herbs and I've, you know, made sure that I was utilising the milk kefir and all that sort of stuff. But I was asking my midwife friends about the garlic and they said that's actually being recommended in their hospital system Great. right now. And they, you just tie a little bit of um, dental floss, floss. Oh. yeah, dental floss around it. So you make you make your own little makeshift yeah, um, tampon cool, type cool. of string on it. And tight, tight. Yep, tight, tight. <laughs> or thread it through with a needle. That's a good idea. Thread it through. Yes, a sterile needle, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, off you go. Okay. So you've got a way to get it out. So if it does go too far, or you know, another way is um, you can make little like syringy type of things for yourself. So imagine like the baby um, <coughs> Panadol syringes mm-hmm. that you get, which is sort of um, thick at the bottom, right? If you make yourself a little mixture up of pureed garlic with a little bit of coconut oil mm-hmm. and insert it up, then you've made your own um, mix that it's not going to get stuck. Yeah. Well, it's just going to come back out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So we, we covered, you know, GBS being the probably the biggest worry that's with the, vaginal seeding. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, like yeah, why why we don't want to possibly do it and why the doctors and the that's hospitals. It, yeah, that's the big main concern yeah. of why they're saying, no, let's not do this. And then some natural ways to kind of treat it yeah. so that you don't have to do, possibly don't have to go down the antibiotic route. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I just was thinking if ancestrally, right, our breast milk is specifically kind of preemptively created to feed, uh, I think it's like bifidobacterium, mm-hmm. bifido. So that's your main baby um, seeding first kind of microbiome that we've found for babies. Our breast milk, the sugars in it specifically feed that. And so if there are microbiome in baby upon, you know, yeah, birth, yeah, yes. Within, yeah, within the gut, yeah, they've already got it. That that almost like that seeding is done by that breast um, breast milk, hopefully, to strengthen the first of that bacteria. Yeah. Well, there was an article that I'd read by I think it was a uni in Western Australia, and there was a PhD student there, and she was working on on this, and her the thoughts were um, breastfeeding after you have a cesarean is going to be way more effective at um, developing the ch- child's microbiome than um, vaginal seeding Okay, because of the very nature of breastfeeding. It, it is the, the number one thing that can steer and develop your baby's microbiome. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And especially if you're exclusively breastfeeding for six, eight months, yeah. then that really is a – over half of that period that you were saying, that thousand-day inoculation phase uh, of you know first gut bacteria setting. No, you need to do maths a bit better. <laughs> so the thousand days is two years. Yeah. 
for six months, a quarter. Of a quarter, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that breast milk but is yeah. going to be super important. Totally. And so the World Health Organization recommends exclusively breastfeeding until six months and then you start to introduce your solids and then continuing to support um, with breastfeeding until your baby is two. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a very low percentage of women in the Western world that reach that. Oh, it's hard. Yeah. 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 So um, we've all got to do our best to yeah. support that. Yeah. We'll but I definitely started getting sick of breastfeeding, you know, around one and a half when we got the grabbies and the, the pulling and the shirts coming off in front of, um, you know, friends and family. And <laughs> it's <laughs> but, challenging. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, feeding a toddler for totally. sure. But she's still, you know, I've really worked on weaning quite um, a lot in the last few months and we, we do it once or twice a week now. We we uh-huh. still have booby but once or twice a week. Yeah. And that's kind of okay right and now. And just remind people how old Callie is now. So Callie was, um, she's two and a half. Yeah. Yeah, she's almost two and a half. Yeah. So the stage is about, what, is she five weeks older than Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she is two and a half. Callie's almost two and a half. Yeah. 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 So she's two and a half. <laughs> um, she still feeds once a day. Okay. But she is so distracted and annoying during that feed <laughs> that I'm sure it will stop soon. Well, Callie started kicking me in the face. As oh, yeah. Well. So yeah. Like, yeah. I just, put your foot down, put your foot yeah, down, put your foot down. She'll talk to me with a mouthful of food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and both our girls are great eaters, touch wood again. We've, yeah. You know, we've um, introduced them to lots of varied foods and they're both really good eaters. So it's not like they necessarily need that um, breast milk anymore, but we are still assisting to immune function. That, yeah, to build that immune system. Yeah. And, and unlike you, where you are lucky with the no allergies I've, I've yes. been battling um, food allergies and eczema and stuff with sage and Bailey's, uh, as she got older, also developed into asthma. So if I can give them more protection yeah. by this, you know, lengthening of, of breastfeeding, then I will. And you have had uh, three vaginal births. Yes. And two two of the girls still have allergies, um, eczema. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So, it's, I, you know, that's a good point to make that you can have the the right, I guess, scenario um, in, in what some people think is the right scenario and it's still – those things still occur yeah. with or without that vaginal stuff. Yeah, totally. The And I think you, you sort of look back on things and go, oh, you know, if I did this differently, if I did that. But we're all in the scenario where we've got to start from where we are. Right now we can't, we can't turn back time yeah. to go, okay, well, if I had have, you know – used garlic and probiotics every day in that pregnancy maybe things would have been different they, they might be they might they might not be it might might be just um you know just what their destiny that, mm. and but what we can do is change their exposure to things and and support once they are born what's going to happen now so i think getting back to that the entire crux of this is would you be a yes or a no for um vaginal seeding mine's like it's up to you it's it's it depends if any of my babies were um to be born by cesarean i would have been all for it um but i didn't have i've got really good but balanced gut health like i don't have any symptoms of gut dysbiosis however saying that i do have um you know, I did have a higher GBS and um, 
you know, I'd be like weighing that up as well. Mm. And the other thing is if you've ever had an STI and, you know, there's a lot of women out there that, that have. So yes. um, if you've got that history of that and you've got a dormant things, particularly herpes, then that would be a no. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't risk it. Well, see, I chose not to get tested. Mm-hmm. That's another maybe important point to make. You can – it is a choice. Yeah. I chose not to get tested. And um, so if we happened to go into an emergency Caesar and Callie had to come out that way, then I probably wouldn't have all the information that I needed to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So we can, we can actually um, test the vaginal microbiome now just like we can with our um, you know, bowel health um, microbiome. And send it away. We can figure out what bacteria species are in there. So that's that coming back to informed choice. Whether you've got you, you know, hundred percent that you're balanced. You're not dysbiotic. You don't have any, you know, bacterial overgrowth that's going to be concerned if you have a cesarean. Particularly for the women that have to have elective cesareans. So the women that. Um, you know, it's it's going to be dangerous for them to have a vaginal birth, and they're, they're worried about this whole you know vaginal birth, birth is best scenario that they hear. Um, and like, well, how can I support this baby? I have to have this. It's for my health or my well being mm. or you know the babies. And and they hear about seeding, and they're like, well, oh, but this is so controversial. Then I would say, you know, go and find out your information. Mm. See if you've got these, um, you know, what your microbiome, your vaginal microbiome is and um, make your decision from there. Yeah, and then what happens after is important. That's, you know, probably key, right? Yeah. Here is that, yeah, like I just had a best friend who um, had to elect for a cesarean for various reasons and she had a, you know, beautiful cesarean birth, all went well and um, had a lot of trouble starting to breastfeed. But that was something that was so important to her after um, a cesarean was that she really persevered and it can be really hard and painful and horrible and, yeah. you know, it's not this beautiful thing that women, you know, not everyone gets to just pick up a baby and put it on their breast and all that milk comes and yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she had blisters and, and infections and all kinds of stuff. And so, and when you do have the infections, the solution is... And antibiotics again. Yep. Yay. Yep. Um, no, but she was, she's been really uh, persevering with that and it's finally working out and going really well for her. So that was something that was really important to her. But yep. what she also did was um, take antibiotics herself, uh, probiotics, sorry, because she really wanted to build her immune system and the, I guess the bacteria that was in her breast milk. Yeah. So that's something we can do as well, right? Yeah, sure. Yep, there's um, really specific probiotics for breastfeeding mums that will support your baby's microbiome. Um, it's a bit controversial. A lot of people will say, well, can I just give my baby probiotics? Mm. And um, the expert, the leaders in the field of that at the moment say, no, no, give it to mum, yep. get it through the breast milk, don't give it to mum. Because there's always risks when you're introducing things directly to a baby. So you want to minimise any risks. Um, yeah. Yeah, give it to mum, get it through the milk. 
And the other thing is it may be that it's more available to baby, more digestible, maybe that it's more like easily utilized through the breast milk because the, the baby's gut is um, specifically made to be able to break down and use breast milk as its first food. Yeah. So putting anything into mum and getting it through the breast milk is going to make it more available yeah. to Bob. Yeah. And, and so we can talk about instead of, you know, probiotic supplements, mm. for example, of what foods do you get probiotics in? Mm. There's heaps of different foods that we can eat that are, you know, live bacteria foods. You sauerkraut's going and your kimchis and <laughs> your yogurts and things like that and you will um, balance microbiome naturally. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, well, I, I hope that that's kind of answered the question and I'm sorry it took us so long to get to it. We, yeah, we really – Potted We've both and got two-year-olds. We do, we yeah, do. Very hard. <laughs> <laughs> Who, yeah, like even after two, still need um, bits and pieces. Like so, you know, like I said, Callie doesn't have any allergies or anything, but she she still gets sick. Yeah, she still gets things. She gets colds and flus. She goes to daycare. She picks up um, conjunctivitis, all kinds of bits and pieces. So like, <laughs> yeah. it's always going to happen. But when you have a newborn, you're just highly, highly aware of it, right? And you worry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, giving probiotics after two, when we said before that it's kind of set, it doesn't mean that they're not going to work, right? Oh no, no, no. And there's there's definitely scenarios where I I would give. Once they've introduced foods, yeah, that I would say, yep, let's let's add get stuck into it. Probiotics into this baby's regime because they're showing symptoms that they need, you know, specific strains or more support. But it might be that you, we just um, encourage um, prebiotic foods as mm-hmm. one of their first foods to help the growth with the good bacteria. Yeah, because um, that's often missed in a lot of um, you know treatments with. Probiotics. They think it, they forget the prebiotic, which is the thing that actually you know feeds them the probiotics and yeah. makes them flourish and keeps them in there. We all need food. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, and I did a podcast a little while ago on um, probiotics and prebiotics, and just talking about like not just grabbing one of these shelf ones from the pharmacy necessarily. For the, when we're talking about probiotics, we're talking about really specific stuff and having a trained knowledge in what to prescribe. And you keep mentioning specific probiotics. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about thousands of different strains that are for different things. Yes. And yep. you look at, we're going to look at what your symptoms are yeah. and what your – And what Bub's – like if Bub is displaying symptoms, yep. what they are and, yeah, how we can specifically uh, implement that bacteria that may be missing. Yeah. The best example of that is the strain um, Rhamnosus LGG. Mm-hmm. And there's so much research in that that it will help um, with, with kids with allergic tendencies – and a lot of the time, so a pregnant woman comes to see me and we'll talk about their family history. If there's any family history of um, allergies, asthma, food intolerances, I'll give that for the mum to have during pregnancy and it's shown to reduce um, their children's incidence if they take it during pregnancy. And then once bub comes out, um, you know, mum keeps taking it while she's breastfeeding. And, and then if baby then you know, displays those allergic tendencies, then we can start to utilise it with that. It's one of the things that I use with my girls with their allergies and it, it's um, a key to keeping eczema under control with yeah. with, um, with Bailey in particular. 
I've been calling it remosis all this time. Remnosis. Yeah. I tend to just make up my own oh, yeah. uh, pronunciation when it comes to these bugs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I studied um, a, in the early days of my um, naturopathic course by distance. And so when I actually went to my face-to-face things, I worked out that I was saying a lot of things <laughs> totally wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's how you say that. But you know them. I do know. It's fine. Yeah. Well, I can, read, uh, I can write them. If, you, if anyone has any questions or worries, you can email Sheree or I. Sheree's um, info will be in the show notes. And you know me. I'm info at mgherbs.com.au. Um, it's a conversation that we could kind of just sit here all day and have, right? Oh. Yeah. It's quite in depth and it is quite complex and it is what it what we'd love to kind of point out is that it does just come down to your choice and having a voice there, getting as much information and knowledge as possible and, and then just making the decision that you feel is best for you and your family. Totally. Yeah. It's all it's always up to you. Thank you for your time. No worries, thank you. Bye-bye. Pleasure. If you like what we do here at The Naked Naturopath, then be sure to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To learn more about Mal and MG Herbs, jump onto mgherbs.com, follow us on Facebook at MG Herbs Australia and Instagram at MG Herbs Official. Please keep in mind that all advice and opinions on The Naked Naturopath are not individualized. To get the right advice for you, be sure to make a booking with Mal or your health professional. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.